For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome back to the Big T Trauma Series on Behind the Knife. In this series, we cover clinically oriented material that focuses on how best to care for the traumatically injured and critically ill patient. My name is Patrick Georgioff. I'm a trauma surgery fellow at the University of Texas Memorial Hermann Red Duke Trauma Institute in Houston, Texas. And today, I'm joined by Dr. Jane McCauley, also a trauma surgery fellow at the University of Texas in Houston. And Today, we're going to cover rib fractures, and before we do so, I want to thank Dr. John Harvin and Dr. David Meyer for taking the time out of their busy schedules to review this episode and make sure Jane and I aren't saying anything goofy. So, Jane, thanks for being here. Why is it important that we talk about rib fractures? Thanks for having me back, Patrick. Um, yeah, so uh, rib fractures are common, and they present in at least 10% of all trauma patients and approximately 30% of patients with chest trauma specifically. Right, and rib fractures cause all sorts of problems, correct? Oh yeah, so that's definitely correct. Um, One of the main things we worry about is respiratory function, which rib fractures can definitely compromise. Right, Uh, rib fractures are very painful, uh, and this leads to splinting and other issues with pulmonary mechanics. Yeah, sure. So splinting occurs when somebody's ability to breathe is limited by pain. And so they ultimately take small breaths. Right. And this can easily be observed. If you ask the patient to take a deep breath, uh, that breath will often be cut short by pain. Uh, But you can also quantify how limited a patient's respiratory status is um, uh, by measuring something. What can you measure, Jane? Right. So we we measure using an incentive spirometer. And so the maximum inspiratory effort of a patient should yield approximately a tidal volume of greater than 15 cc's per kilogram of ideal body weight. Ideal body weight. Ideal body weight, yes. And so that's based on gender and height. Okay. Uh, so for example, say you have a 25 year old man who is six feet tall and should they, that, that person should have vital capacity of about one liter. And then anything less than that is a sign of insufficient pain control. And that's a problem. Right. Pain control is important because pain control theoretically, uh, uh, or poor pain control, I should say, theoretically leads to splinting. Splinting can cause atelectasis and the inability to clear secretions, both of which can cause pneumonia. Now, pneumonia is the common pathway to acute respiratory failure in patients with rib fractures. Therefore, mm-hmm. preventing pneumonia offers the best means to avoid potentially preventable death and, and morbidity that come with the rib fractures we see in our trauma patients. Right. Yeah, that's important. Um, so, I mean, for example, in one retrospective study of patients with rib fractures, the mortality reached 12%, and uh, that mortality more than doubled uh, from 2% without rib fractures to 6% for one rib fracture and 8% for seven rib, seven rib fractures. Um, but also ventilator days also increased with the increasing number of rib fractures in right. those patients. All, all makes sense. I should say, too, 
for all these studies we mentioned, without going into details of who wrote it, the year, the journal, all that kind of stuff, these studies are in the show notes. Um, I think there's eight or so in the references for this this particular podcast. So if you're interested in what we're talking about, check out those show notes um, so that you can link up to the, the studies we, we refer to. Um, in regards to morbidity and mortality, let's talk about elderly, right? Uh, yeah, oftentimes, yeah. fall from standing, mm-hmm. grandma breaks her ribs. Uh, yep. uh, these are the most common injuries following blunt trauma to the chest in the elderly. And I found this stat amazing. Each rib fracture increases the odds of dying in the elderly by 19% and of developing pneumonia by 27%. So each additional rib fracture increases the odds of dying by 19% and developing pneumonia by 27%. Yeah, I think it's really important to think about rib fractures, especially in the elderly, you know, just looking at that, at those stats alone. Um, but there's other injuries associated with right, rib fractures right. as well. So 90% of patients with rib fractures actually have some other type of injury. So it does not often occur in isolation. The, the amount of a force needed to, to break ribs uh, often, again, will, will injure something else. Um, the most common things are associated with those rib fractures, stuff you might mm-hmm. think about, pneumothorax, hemothorax, pulmonary contusion, sternal fractures. That sure. all makes sense. But there's some other things, right, Jane? Yeah, sure. So, And, and don't forget, spleen and liver injuries are, are common as well. Yeah. All right. Change gears here. Let's go on to a quick anatomy refresher. Sounds so, great. <laughs> anatomy. So, the tw- so there are 12 ribs. 12 ribs. The 12, 12 ribs of the thorax <laughs> are divided into true ribs and false ribs. So the first seven ribs are true ribs as they form a complete loop uh, between the sternum and the vertebrae, uh, while the lower five ribs are considered false ribs as they do not fully reach the sternum anteriorly. Yep. And so, and of these lower five ribs, ribs seven through 10, uh, they connect to the cartilage of the rib above them and therefore connect to the sternum indirectly. It's important to remember that. But uh, ribs 11 and 12 do not, and they are considered floating ribs. Right. Uh, there are also different ways to describe rib fractures. So what we will discuss today comes from the Chest Wall Injury Society, which is, in fact, a pretty awesome organization for anyone uh, with an interest in chest wall trauma. And per the Chest Wall Injury Society, a rib fracture can be simple, wedge, or, or complex fracture. Yeah, so a simple fracture is a single fractured line across the rib with no fragmentation. A web, A wedge fracture has a second fracture line that does not span the whole width of the rib. And a complex fracture has at least two fracture lines with one or more fragments that span the width of that rib. Yeah. And and rib fractures can be anterior, meaning anterior to the axillary line, uh, lateral uh, or between the anterior and posterior axillary line, or posterior, which would be posterior to the posterior axillary, axillary line. Right. So uh, also fractures can also be described based on their degree of displacement. Right. So non-displaced rib fractures have over 90% overlap between cortical surfaces. Uh, Offset rib fractures have some overlap, okay, but less than 90%. And displaced rib fractures have no overlap. Yeah. Oftentimes radiology will simply refer to the degree of displacement as mild, moderate, or severe. I think that's probably more, at least more common or what I've seen. Uh, uh, And what about flail segment? Okay. So flail segment is defined as fractures of three or more ribs in two or more places. Okay. But flail chest is the clinical finding of paradoxical movement, which is frequently not actually present. Right. So flail segment, three or more rib fractures in two or more places, and flail chest is the, the clinical, the, the paradoxical movement of the chest wall. So what do you actually mean by paradoxical movement of the chest wall? 
So, so when a patient breathes in and the chest expands, a the flail segment will move in opposite direction yeah, of that. Perfect. And why is this important? It's important because a flail chest screws with respiratory mechanics, basically, and can lead to really bad things like respiratory failure, pneumonia, what we're talking about. All right. Okay, uh, good. So let's quickly go through imaging. So chest x-ray is a critical part of our trauma workup, but it tends to underestimate rib fractures, right? Yeah, it sure does. And so uh, CD scans will pick up more fractures, especially those non-displaced fractures. Those are, those are hard to see on x-rays. Um, but a CT will also show all those things that the rib fractures are doing to the lungs, such as lung injuries, including contusions or lacerations. Right, and, and there are post-processing options when a CT scan is obtained that allow for the recreation of a 3D model of the bony structures of the chest wall. And this can be particularly useful. Um, we love looking at these mm-hmm. uh, at Morning Report. <laughs> it can be particularly useful when evaluating a patient for rib plating or, or, or fixation or stabilization. And, um, and so any person that we even think we may consider uh, a plating, we're going to ask for 3D recons. Yep. Um, so, okay, let's, let's jump to the management of rib fractures now. So for the sake of this discussion, let's assume the rib fractures are an isolated injury. Um, so where, where do you admit these patients and why does it matter, Patrick? Yeah. yeah. So where you admit the patient does actually matter. Okay. Because if severe enough patients with rib fractures need aggressive and really pretty highly supervised care. So specifically their pain needs to be treated, appropriately. Mm-hmm. And depending on the pain control intervention, this may require different levels of monitoring, right? Uh, the respiratory status needs to be measured in real time as well. And they need legit pulmonary therapy. And by legitimate, I mean that the nurse, the RT, the residents, all the above are popping in on a regular scheduled basis to evaluate the patient and encourage participation in pulmonary therapy. So, uh, yeah, many centers have actually a protocolized pulmonary therapy. For example, here at Memorial Hermann, we use a volume expansion protocol. This includes a consult to respiratory therapy and the regular use of, ins- of incentive spirometry or positive expiratory pressure, also known as intermittent positive pressure breathing, if the patient is unable to participate in incentive spirometry, if they're not meeting their goals or has poor oxygenation. Um, so Patrick, how do you decide where to admit the patient? Right, right. So this is based on the severity of injury, uh, which can be determined by looking at the number of rib fractures, the age of the patient, their oxygen requirements, um, what their ED, um, incentive spirometry volume was on initial evaluation and how well their pain is controlled. Yeah. And again, this is often protocolized, which is good. Uh, here in Houston, we will admit a patient to either a step-down unit or the ICU if they meet any of the following criteria. Okay. And that criteria is if they are greater than 45 years of age with four or more rib fractures in a series, flail chest, an incentive spirometry of less than 15 cc's per kilogram of ideal body weight, poor pain control, and or an oxygen requirement of greater than five liters per minute nasal cannula. Right. So a bunch of rib fractures, older age, poor IS, high oxygen requirements, poor pain control. All these things make you think about essentially not putting that patient on the floor. Depending on what your institution is, it may be an ICU, a step down, some restaurant unit, whatever you might have, somewhere where they get watched more closely for all the reasons we just talked about. Um, And 
you know, this stuff's not terribly sexy. It's not terribly exciting. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but treating patients with rib fractures actually requires a lot of attention. And that's why it's critical to have great partners in your respiratory therapists and your nurses, your physical therapists, and certainly protocols help too. It, it takes any kind of thinking out of it. Uh, it's, you know, not that infrequent that you're on a call, you're in the middle of the night, it's midnight, you got a bunch of patients, you're like, okay, where is this person who's, where should they actually be admitted? Right. Y- you look at the protocol, you take all the thinking out of it, say, okay, they need to actually go to the step down unit because they're at higher risk of, of developing pulmonary issues. Right. In um, one study out of, out of Milwaukee actually reported that every 10% increase in vital capacity after injury was associated with a 30% reduction in the likelihood of pulmonary complications, right? So, so better in center spirometry, less pulmonary complications. Again, being in the right place in the hospital with the right people looking after you can help you increase your IS. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And um, so on that note, let, let's cover some uh, topics about pain control. Uh, again, adequate pain management really does improve patient tolerance for that deep breathing that's really necessary um, and coughing, which it improves lung volumes, clear secretions, and this is what ultimately decreases the risk for, for them getting pneumonia. Right. And so the management of, of trauma-related pain, which obviously includes rib fractures, is is highly institutional-specific. So uh, this is likely due to the fact that high-quality data on this topic is, is relatively limited. And I think it can actually, the data can, after looking through a whole bunch of it, this is what I came up with, Jane, is our mm-hmm. summarization. So multimodal slash opioid sparing approaches are increasing, okay, and our usual care at many trauma centers. And regional anesthesia should be uh, considered as a high-quality adjunct to your multimodal opioid sparing approach. I think that's a pretty, that fair? Fair, that's a pretty fair summary. All right. Um, so, uh, okay, so let's, let's talk about an example of... Uh, a multimodal approach to pain control. You know, there's there's lots of different protocols out there, and uh, this happens to be the one we use at our institution. We start with around-the-clock acetaminophen, and we do 1,000 milligrams every six hours, and an NSAID as well, such as naproxen, 500 milligrams every 12 hours, with or without a, a gabapentinoid, like 300 milligrams of gabapentin every eight hours, and or... Uh, topical application of local anesthetics like lidocaine uh, in the form of patches. So it's a 5%, 12 hours on, 12 hours off, basically. Um, and I, I should say that the doses just mentioned <laughs> assume they have normal liver and kidney function. Right. And if this is insufficient in treating a patient's pain, uh, we'll add opioids uh, to the equation. So for moderate pain or a pain uh, a score of 4 to 6, um, Many protocols will will prefer the use of tramadol or oxycodone as their mm-hmm. kind of next step. Um, and so for moderate pain control, tramadol can be dosed at 50 milligrams every six hours, oxycodone, five milligrams every four hours, and, and both on an as-needed basis for, for breakthrough pain. Yeah, and then, you know, for, for, sub- for severe pain um, or a pain score of, let's say, 7 to 10, uh, tramadol can be increased to 100 milligrams every six hours as needed, and oxycodone 10 milligrams every four hours as needed. Okay, and if that doesn't cut it? Well, so then we really do need to consider alternative interventions such as IV medications, regional nerve blocks, and surgical stabilization. Um, so... IV medications, you know, um, include opioids like hydromorphone or morphine, um, and and that's deli- that can be delivered as needed or via a PCA, patient controlled pump. Um, there are non-narcotic IV medications, and that includes um, ketamine and lidocaine. Uh, 
Yeah. Um, what is the what is the pain dose for for ketamine for IV ketamine? Uh, the pain dose for IV ketamine is zero point one to zero point two five milligrams per kilogram per hour, uh, and that's a continuous infusion. Um, but remember, there's there are side effects of ketamine there to remember, um, including increased heart rate and blood pressure, and also it can cause hallucinations. Yes. Um, so the pain dose also of uh, IV lidocaine, while we're mentioning it, is also. Uh, 20 mics per kilogram per minute without titration also. Um, lidocaine... Importantly. Yeah, importantly, um, should not be used in patients with heart failure or heart block. Right. And and as you mentioned, there are a number of options for regional pain control as well, including uh, continuous epidural infusions, uh, paravertebral blocks, uh, intercostal uh, nerve blocks as well. And each of these have their, their own benefits and risks. Yeah. Um, you know, so there, there's, there are no large, generalizable, randomized trials comparing the efficacy of these modalities that you mentioned in, yeah. in patients with rib fractures. Um, but the East Blunt Thoracic Trauma Guidelines from 2016, uh, they conditionally recommend epidural analgesia over non-regional modalities of pain control. Uh, however, regional anesthesia tends to be underutilized. And in a review of the National Trauma Data Bank, only about 3% of patients uh, who might actually benefit from regional anesthesia for treatment of rib fracture-related pain actually received this treatment. 3% is not very much. Not a lot. So regarding epidurals, the, the data is variable. It's low quality and it's heterogeneous. And, and the 2016 EAST guidelines may be the most comprehensive and recent review of, of the data. And it found that pain control may be better with epidurals but that there was no difference in pulmonary complications in patients with or without epidurals, and that patients with epidurals may be on the vent longer and in the hospital longer. So, so definitely a mixed bag. Yeah, and also the use of epidurals also really depends on how robust of a regional pain service you actually have at your institution, honestly. And so, you know, when is the service available? Will they place epidurals in non-surgical patients? Right. And we should mention the side effects of epidurals also includes epidural hematomas, urinary retention, hypotension, you know, a whole bunch of not great things. Although, to be fair, even medications like NSAIDs and gabapentin and, of course, opioids, they all definitely have their own fairly nasty side effect profile as well. So nothing, nothing's free here. Yeah, that's definitely true. So let's talk about paravertebral blocks and catheter. So a paravertebral block involves the injection of local anesthesia adjacent to the thoracic vertebra close to where the spinal nerves emerge from the, the intervertebral foramina, right? So mm-hmm. uh, this results in an ipsilateral somatic and sympathetic nerve blockade in multiple uh, contiguous segments of the thoracic dermatomes, really above and below the site of injection. And so if a catheter is inserted as well um, into this this paravertebral space, you can do continuous infusion of local anesthesia, which can can last up to a week even, too, if you leave the catheter behind. Yeah, and compared to epidural anesthesia, there are fewer side effects, too. However, you know, a review of the National Trauma Database found no differences in pain control outcomes, et cetera, between 1,000 rib fracture patients with epidural catheters and 1,000 rib fracture patients with paravertebral catheters. Sure. Um, and, and another regional technique is the intercostal nerve block. However, this, this approach is definitely limited because you need to inject multiple levels right. of ribs if you have more than one rib fracture, and you have to do so repeatedly uh, as the anesthesia wears off, um, which is, you know, risk or a, a 
a downside of any of these sure. regional pain control if you're not leaving a catheter behind. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also a higher risk of pneumothorax when you're poking multiple times at the trying to get to the uh, intercostal nerve. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we should also mention serratus anterior blocks. So, so this involves injecting local anesthetic uh, into the space between the surface of the ribs and the overlying serratus anterior muscle. Um, and the injection is often done right overlying the fracture uh, and it's really designed for lateral fractures. That's where the serratus anterior hooks up to the, to the ribs. Right. And once injection, injected, the thought is that the local um, first anesthetizes the, the lateral cutaneous branches of the nerves, but then kind of soaks into the chest wall and, and works on the intercostal nerves themselves. Um, and so from what I understand, uh, at least the, the t- technique is fairly simple. Uh, it has a relatively low risk of complications, but there really is not any data whatsoever beyond case reports uh, to support its use. Yeah, that's a pretty good summary of those procedures, Patrick. Um, all right, let, let's finish this off by addressing the elephant in the yes. room, our favorite elephant. So who do we plate? Can we plate everyone? Please. Oh, I love plating. I love plating. Um, but we have to be very thoughtful about this. So so who do we plate? Um, so surely, Dr. McCauley, yes. we can provide our listeners with some definitive recommendations. Uh, well, um, in a perfect world, maybe, but we do not live in a perfect world now, do we, Patrick? No, no, we don't. And that's why we're going to preface this discussion on rib plane by saying that there is very little that is black and white here. And a lot of this is just different shades of gray. Great. So although the majority of patients will heal their rib fractures with non-surgical measures, Selected patients do benefit from surgical rib fracture fixation. Right. So let's start with the one true indication for surgical stabilization of rib fractures that everyone agrees upon. And this is really the only black and white part of this discussion. And that's flail segment. So flail segment is the only indication for plating for which at least some degree of moderate quality data is is available. Yeah. So for patients with flail segment... um, Three randomized trials with a total enrollment of 123 patients showed that early operative treatment uh, reduces pulmonary complications and it decreases ICU length of stay and shortens the duration of mechanical ventilation. Again, you said three RCTs, 123 patients only, but it did show a good good effect. So um, let's move on to less clear indications for rib plating. So in general, the following criteria are acceptable for rib plating. I'm going to give you four. Number one. Patients with respiratory failure or impending respiratory failure due to their painful rib fractures. Number two, significant chest wall deformities. Three, significantly displaced ribs found at thoracotomy being performed for another reason, so on the way out type stuff. And number four, chest wall instability or pain due to non-union or malunion of fractures, so down the road. So again, four other generally agreed upon indications. One, patients with respiratory failure or impending respiratory failure due to their painful ribs. Two, real banged up, messed up, significant chest wall deformities that really just need to be fixed. Three, significantly displaced ribs found at thoracotomy being formed for another reason. So on the way out, you want to fix those if you see them. And for chest wall instability or pain due to non-union or malunion of fractures down the road after the injury. So in regards to plating for respiratory failure due to painful rib fractures, uh, it's important to emphasize uh, the requirement that the respiratory failure be due to the painful ribs themselves, right? So many trauma patients will, like we talked about, have pulmonary contusions, lacerations, et cetera, in addition to their rib fractures. So if the patient's, uh, if the reason, if you can suss this out at least, if the reason for the patient's respiratory failure is due primarily to their pulmonary contusions, they may actually not benefit 
uh, from rib fixation. So it's really, I guess, important to kind of hash that out and decide what's the cause of their respiratory failure. Yeah, okay. So what about patients that don't meet the criteria that you just talked about? Uh, For instance, a healthy 27-year-old male with, say, three displaced ribs without respiratory failure and, say, mediocre pain control. What do you do with him? Yes, or that's a good question. what do you do with the 78-year-old woman with five non-displaced fractures, also without respiratory failure, but mediocre pain control? Um, you know, a young guy is a better surgical candidate, but is less likely to develop pulmonary complications compared to that elderly lady. Uh, so is there data to guide us here? Or um, this patient surgeon or is this patient surgeon or institution specific sure so so good question so um as i mentioned before the data is, is not great so this is highlighted by again mentioned east the east practice management guidelines published in 2017 for rib plating in which the authors conditionally recommend rib plating compared to non-operative management for patients with flail chest but do not offer recommendations for non-flail patients due to the lack of data But there was a randomized control trial that also had an observational arm called non-flail published this year in the journal Trauma that looked at surgical stabilization within 72 hours for patients with three or more ipsilateral severely displaced bicortical rib fractures, specifically greater than 50% of rib width without flail chest. And additional inclusion criteria included two or more pulmonary physiologic derangements, such as incentive spirometry, less than 50% of their predicted volume, or a, nu- or a numeric pain score that was greater than five. The primary outcome for the study was numeric pain score at two weeks follow-up. Right, and, and this was a multi-center uh, trials row. Um, they enrolled a total of 110 subjects. Unfortunately, only 23 of those chose right. to randomize, right? Mm-hmm. And at two weeks follow-up, the numeric pain score was significantly lower in the operative compared with the non-operative group. But uh, the difference was 2.9 versus 4.5. So not a huge difference, but it was Mm -hmm. definitely there. And and other differences included improved quality of life, less narcotic use, and fewer, actually, plural space complications in the operative group. Um, And, again, I mentioned this earlier, uh, to to see this study, uh, look at the show notes uh, where you can click on the link to to read this in more detail. Right. Long-term outcomes after plating may be favorable as well. In a separate retrospective study, 101 patients were surveyed following rib plating at a level 1 trauma center. Pain was gone an average of five weeks after surgery. Satisfaction on a scale of 1 to 10 was 9.2. And 90% of those patients returned to their previous work after an average of eight weeks. Right. And I think that, that just kind of goes to show you, um, you know, why such a favorable view, or at least in some places, a favorable view of rib plating exists. Because anecdotally, you see not an insignificant number of these patients where you uh, fix them up and, and they really look great in clinic. You know, two weeks later, they're comfortable they're pain-free and they're they're out you know being active um and so again that's just that's strictly anecdotal but that that survey may you know support that as well so let's get back to the patients you 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 mentioned to me you posed two questions about these two patients so the healthy 27 year old male with three displaced rib fractures without respiratory failure and only mediocre pain control and the other patient was a 78 year old woman with five non-displaced rib fractures also without respiratory failure but also with mediocre pain control so Based on all this stuff we just talked about, Jane, do we plate them? You could, and you couldn't. Uh, you heard the data. 
or a lack thereof. Um, at this point in time in 2020, before more data is available, it is really up to the individual surgeon and patient to make this decision. Yeah, I think that's right and that's appropriate. So we'll we'll leave it at that. So let's talk about the timing of replating. Jane, do you try to operate on your patients within a certain time frame? Yeah. In general, I try to take patients to the OR within 72 hours of that injury. In general, patients really do better with earlier plating. Um, there was a prospective study that examined uh, 551 patients who had undergone rib plating at four different trauma centers. Each additional hospital day before rib fixation was independently associated with a 31% increased likelihood of pneumonia and a 27% increased likelihood of prolonged mechanical ventilation and a 26 a percent increased likelihood of tracheostomy. Right. So increased risk of all these bad things for each additional hospital day before that patient was was, yeah. fi- was fixed, right? Okay. Yeah. So earlier is better. Yep. Um, so, all right. Let's talk about operative planning now. Uh, how do you decide which ribs to fix? Well, right. So first we want to review the imaging. Like we mentioned earlier, a 3D uh, recon of the CT scan, scan can be really helpful for this. Um, and typically... Uh, only ribs four through nine are actually plated. Uh, this is because the majority of chest wall movement occurs at, at these ribs, four through nine. Uh, ribs one through three demonstrate very little movement uh, uh, with breathing, and they're really hard to get to. And ribs 10 through 12 add very little um, to chest wall stability. And what about approach? How are you going to position the patient? Yeah, so most rib fractures are like located laterally or posteriorly. And so for anterolateral, lateral, and posterolateral fractures, uh, the patient should be positioned in the lateral decubitus position. So if these fractures are strictly posterior, uh, then they could be positioned prone. Uh, We should note that single lung ventilation is not absolutely required for these cases. So a double lumen tube does not need to be placed unless you are planning on performing a concomitant VATS during that case. And and we're going to discuss that more in a minute. And how do you decide on what incision to make? Yeah, so more often than not, uh, rib fractures tend to uh, line up in a straight line, okay, across multiple ribs. And so this allows uh, for good exposure by simply making a vertically uh, or oftentimes moderately slanted incision just over this fracture line itself. Um, You can definitely use a standard anterior, anterior lateral or posterior lateral thoracotomy as well, but this may actually limit your exposure against uh, a multiple rib fracture, especially if you're spanning two, three, four, you know, if you're getting up to four or five, really, uh, of ribs that you're fixing. Right. And, and we also try to use muscle sparing techniques right. for uh, some lateral and most posterior lateral and posterior rib fractures. This requires identifying the oscillatory triangle, which is a bare area on the chest wall that and the borders are made up of the trapezius, the latissimus and the scapula slash rhomboid major. Um, Once identified, the trap, lat, and trapezius uh, can be then elevated off the chest wall and shifted about to expose actually a surprisingly large area of chest wall and really good exposure. Yeah, it's just kind of like this magical little space. You can nugger in there, you get down to the chest wall, and you can really like you just shift your window around and you can get again uh, to a whole lot of uh, a chest wall it's gorgeous um and and but sometimes you can't get to all you need 
but what's n- nice about even when you get into that oscillatory triangle and spread all these things out, you often only need to take an individual muscle, say the lat. You, you usually only have to take a few centimeters of it to really increase the um, your exposure. Uh, and certainly self-retaining retractors uh, uh, help. There's a whole bunch of different techniques for that or good, strong medical students on. Right. <laughs> usually I'm like two steps, pulling up as hard as I can. <laughs> yeah. So, and for... Uh, anterolateral fractures, a vertical or moderately slanted incision over the fracture line itself can again be used. In this case, however, the uh, oscillatory triangle does not come into play. Right, right. Um, for anterolateral fractures, you typically need to split the serratus anterior and or remove it from its bony insertion to expose the underlying fractures, of which um, most of these anterolateral fractures tend to occur at the serratus anterior's point of insertion. And so it's important to avoid transecting the muscle kind of farther up and away on the chest wall because you could injure the long thoracic nerve. But if you stay on the chest wall uh, and peel those muscles off or, in, you know, in a kind of muscle sparing or fashion, you split the, uh, the serratus anterior muscles along their own length, uh, this can protect the nerve itself. Yeah, that's great. So uh, the next thing we need to talk about is what types of plates are we going to use? Yeah. So the standard approach to operative fixation of the ribs uses titanium plates that are placed from the outside of the chest wall. And secured in place using locking screws. So there's also a plating system uh, that uses a reverse contour plates to reduce uh, and fix the fractures from within the chest cavity, and that uses uh, a VATS approach as well. So no, no system, and that's a newer one. Uh, the, right. the the quote unquote minimally invasive or interior plating. Um, no uh, system has been uh, proven superior to the other, and there are a few key technical points to consider when when plating a patient to ensure the the best outcome. So the plates should be well opposed to the curvature of the rib. You got to bend the plates. Yep. Well, right, and they should yeah. really be flush to the rib. Uh, screws need to be the appropriate length. So this is determined by measuring each and every rib that you plate. Uh, you measure their thickness, um, and you do so intraoperatively. You can also use a CT scan pre-op uh, to, to corroborate your findings intraoperatively. You need to ensure those screws lock into the plate. And if the screw is designed to be bicortical, it should span both cortices. Sometimes uh, for some of the systems, uh, the um, screws do not uh, cross both cortices. Uh, the ribs should also be fully reduced, and there, if avoidable, should not be a significant gap between your fractured ends. And you should definitely take care not to uh, screw with the intercostal uh, bundle, um, lest you want bleeding right. uh, uh, into the thoracic cavity. Yep. So, Jane, what about chest tube placement and the need for performing a VAT surgery when you're doing your, um, or, or you know, at least placing a scope when you're doing your plating? Yeah, these are actually really good questions. So uh, chest tubes are not absolutely required, but there there is a risk of pneumothorax either from a pre-existing, from the trauma, or iatrogenic just from the nature of what we're doing from the surgery itself. And also uh, post-operative bleeding too, you have to think about. So I've been taught to place one and I typically do so away from the incision and any plates that I've placed to avoid the possibility, remote possibility of infecting the plates. Um, that being said, there are many surgeons that do not routinely place a chest tube, and you know that's fine too. Right. So if you do place a chest tube, what size? So either a small straight tube, like a twenty French, or a fourteen French pigtail is, is typically my practice. Okay. And then what about vats? So should we do? Should we put a scope in with every plate in case? No, you really don't have to, but you certainly can, and it's fair. Um, the rationale behind performing a vats 
is to assess for bleeding and evacuate and wash out any pre-existing hematoma from those rib fractures. Right. And at the very least, you if you're not going to do advance, <laughs> you should get your Yankauer suction into the chest upon completing the plating and, and wash out and evacuate uh, whatever you can get to. A uh, yats. Yes. The yats. The yats. Um, yeah, phenomenal. Okay. <laughs> do we have anything else to talk about? Do we have, any, uh, do we have anything else to talk about? Yeah. So, um, finally. Oh, complications. Yeah, complications. Complications related to plating. Yeah, complications uh, including pneumothorax, bleeding, um, and again, most often from, from those intercostal buggers. It's really um, amazing that you don't have more bleeding from no. the intercostals. I mean, to, to do the rib plating procedure, you have to grasp and reduce these ribs and you do so carefully you don't you know go smashing through the bundle but uh it's amazing how you you treat the rib and the chest wall to get things reduced and, and screwed into place uh, it's amazing that you have more bleeding so again you do want to be very careful cognizant of what you're where you're putting your your uh, reduce your reduction forceps etc around um to to avoid and, and to do that you, you want to stay off the intercostal bundle which is on the inferior aspect of the yep. rib yep. so you tend you, you don't want to go placing uh these you know any calipers or anything like that straight through um the soft tissue just just a millimeter or two away from the other side of the rib right and it, it can be really an impressive amount of bleeding uh, and 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 ultimately the issue is you're going back to the or uh for an intercostal so it's it's really important what, what you're talking about or to ir or to IR. Depending on your preference. Good point. Very good point. Um, so we're back to complications. So, you know, also you can have uh, hardware issues, including infection, uh, which is really honestly where I've never never seen that yeah, happen. The, stu- the studies of which you are bad say it's less than either 5 or 10%. And, and it is rare. And, and yeah. folks who do a lot more plating than we have tell us it's rare. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and remember, you know, we really screw those, um, those screws down on those plates. So, but... But you can have technical issues, and, and, and those screws can become loose, so you have to pay attention to that. Um, so, yeah, so that, that kind of wraps it up for us today. Um, we uh, do a review? Yeah, let's do a review. Okay. So, so pain control is important because splinting theoretically leads to atelectasis and the inability to clear secretions, both of which can cause pneumonia. And pneumonia is the common pathway to acute respiratory failure in patients with rib fractures. Um, also, maximum inspiratory effort should yield a tidal volume of greater than 15 cc's per kilogram of ideal body weight, uh, which is based on gender and height. Sure. Next, in regards to pain control, multimodal and opioid sparing approaches are increasing and are the usual care at many large trauma centers. Uh, not doesn't have to be a large trauma center, but at trauma centers. Mm-hmm. And renal, regional anesthesia um, is uh, considered a high-quality adjunct to these multimodal approaches. Yep, and uh, next, uh, flail chest is the only indication for rib plating with good data behind it. Right, but there are other commonly accepted indications for rib plating. These include patients with respiratory failure or impending respiratory failure due to painful rib fractures, significant chest wall deformities, significantly displaced ribs found at thoracotomy being performed for other reasons, and chest wall instability or pain due to non-union or malunion of rib fractures. And lastly... Uh, plating earlier likely result in better outcomes. So thanks for tuning in again to the Big T Trauma Series on Behind the Knife. Now get out there and dominate the day. Until next time, dominate the day.